Our message tonight is the start of uh, a little fall evening sermon series, as I mentioned. And our text for this evening's message is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is just before Jesus ascended into heaven. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What that is, is it's a very familiar Bible text, at least it should be to you if you've been a Christian for a little while at least. It's called the Great Commission, right? And usually when Christians read that and when we think about it, the main focus is on evangelism and outreach. And it should be. After all, Jesus says in their go, right? And then we read in the beginning of Acts of how the church would go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that evangelistic thrust of the Great Commission of what Jesus calls his disciples to be about is very important. And we take that very seriously here at Faith CRC. But there's also a strong teaching thrust to the Great Commission. Make disciples is in there, right? And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the church, a church that seeks to follow the Great Commission, takes teaching God's word very seriously too. And that's exactly how the Heidelberg Catechism has been a tremendous help to the church of Jesus Christ as a teaching tool. This year is the 450th anniversary of the publication of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism is the most well-known of what we refer to as a church, uh, what we call the three forms of unity. And that those are our confessions. You can find them in the back of the blue Psalter hymnals in our pews. They also include the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort. Catechism is an old Christian word for instruction or teaching. And catechisms do that instruction and teaching through a series of questions and answers, like the Heidelberg does. So as the title of the little series says, this is a tour That means it's more of an overview. We have often preached through specific lessons of the Heidelberg Catechism over the years. Sometimes we've gone straight through the Catechism. Other times, like in the Greatest Hits of the Faith series we did about a year ago, touching down in specific Lord's Days. But this series is going to be more of a bird's eye view. And in this, after this introductory message tonight, we're going to view the catechism, say, first of all, from 30,000 feet. And that's where we're going to see the threefold structure of it, uh, often called guilt, grace, and gratitude. Then we're going to go from 30,000 feet down a little lower to, say, 10,000 feet as we see the four-part contents, the Apostles' Creed, the Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. 
first of all, just a little bit about the name. So there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of background stuff leading up to a look at Lord's Day 1. Um, that's, what we're, that's kind of the, the roadmap for tonight. The name, Heidelberg, is a city in Germany. And I visited there when I, was, when I was young, when I was junior high age. My dad had moved us to the Netherlands for two and a half years so he could study there. And the only vacation we took in that whole time, because my dad was, was busy trying to get his, his studies done, the only vacation we took was a weekend trip to this German city of Heidelberg. And it was really important to my dad that, that we get there because it's the birthplace of the Heidelberg Catechism. So we went there. The city is very beautiful, very picturesque. I just wanted to give you a little uh, a look at it. It's on the Necker River, actually. So that's the Necker River. That's an offshoot of the Rhine. Um, this bridge here, I think we stayed in a hotel that was right about there. I don't know if that's exactly it, but I knew, I remember it was right off of that bridge. So this might very well be the building that we stayed in for those two or three nights. There are some pretty cool castle ruins, which you can see in this picture. Also, um, the, there's the Church of the Holy Spirit there. Um, that's a good view of it. I think here, I think this is it starting right here, but you can't get a good look at it, so it's, it's right here. Both those castle ruins and the Church of the Holy Spirit have a connection to the Heidelberg Catechism, which we'll see in a little bit. Heidelberg is one of the few German cities to escape World War II relatively unscathed. Also, folks in the military will know Heidelberg as the U.S. Army in Europe's headquarters for many decades now. This is where the U.S. Army is, um, is based in Europe. Reformed Protestants know this city best, not because of the U.S. Army headquarters, but because this is where the Heidelberg Catechism was written. And the Heidelberg, the city, was the capital city in a region that was known in the 1500s as the Palatinate. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Palatinate Catechism, and it, it was that, and that's why, that's the bigger region. The Reformation had started earlier in the 1500s and had spread. Along with what was going on in the church, there was a lot going on socially and politically in the 1500s in Europe, and especially in Germany, a lot of wars. In 1559, Elector Frederick III, that was who used the king in that castle, he came to power in the Palatinate. And he was a Calvinist. He followed the French reformer John Calvin on most matters of the faith. That was a little unusual because this was Germany where Martin Luther started the Reformation. So by far most of Germany was Lutheran, not Reformed or Calvinistic. In order to solidify the faith of the region in which he ruled, and in order to teach the people, he commissioned a manual for biblical instruction to be written. That was not an unusual thing to do. 
cities and territories produced their own catechisms left and right in those days. And in fact, there were several Reformed and Lutheran catechisms already being used in that region when the Heidelberg Catechism was commissioned. Frederick got a team of what he thought were capable theologians to put their heads together and take this on. Over the years, we've thought that there were two main authors, Zacharias Ursinus, a professor, and Caspar Olivianus, pastor at the Church of the Holy Spirit. More recently, it's become really clear that Ursinus was the main author. I happen to think it's probably because pastors like Olivianus were too busy in their churches to do any extra stuff, just like today. That's a, little, that's a joke. Some of you laugh. Ursinus was born in what is today Poland, but in the 1500s it was part of Austria, and he taught at the University of Heidelberg. A note of personal interest, my father has done a lot of looking at the Schuringer name going back to, I guess, three brothers Schuringer came from Germany in the early 1500s, moved to the Netherlands. A Schuringer ancestor of mine, Bartholdus, studied at the University of Heidelberg while Ursinus taught there, and he graduated in 1566, a few years after the catechism came out. He was from the Netherlands, but there were no Dutch seminaries yet for Reformed people, so they either sent their uh, people to get trained for the ministry to Geneva, where Calvin was, or to Heidelberg. And Bart Schuringer was sent to, to Heidelberg to study to be a pastor. In 1562, Frederick's council approved the Heidelberg Catechism, and it was first published 450 years ago in 1563. Frederick III, like rulers did at that time, who commissioned things, wrote a preface And that's where we learn what the point of the catechism was. And it's very interesting. As a ruler, he saw it as his duty not only to promote quiet and peaceable living in his realm, but he also saw it as his duty to support the Christian life of his subjects. As he puts it, he wanted to admonish and lead his subjects to devout knowledge and fear of the Almighty and his holy word of salvation as the only foundation of all virtue and obedience. He saw as his responsibility both the temporal and eternal welfare of his people. I wish we had a few more rulers like that today. One of the biggest problems he saw was that the youth were careless in knowing the Bible and a result of of not really knowing the Bible, their their lives followed that and they they didn't live in obedience to God and his word and and he saw the importance of, of, of children being trained very early in life in what the Bible teaches. And the catechism wasn't just for children and youth but he also saw it as for pastors and teachers to use it as a a model for teaching in in the churches, in the Palatinate. 
So we, um, as Christian Reformed folks here at Faith with the Blue Psalter hymnal, the three forms of you, we think of and we know of the Heidelberg Catechism as a great expression of the Reformed faith. And that's not wrong to think that, but it's very interesting. Frederick never says anywhere that his goal was to create a Reformed Catechism. He never uses the word Reformed or Calvinistic. He just talks about, he's just after writing something that gives Christian instruction and a nice summary of the Bible. He never even mentions any certain theologian by name. And that's accurate if you would look at the contents. This is not uh, what we would call a polemical document. And that means it's not arguing stuff all the time. And it doesn't spend time on like secondary matters or secondary doctrines There are some points where the Catholic teaching on stuff is specifically rejected, especially in the Lord's Supper. There are also a couple spots where you can see Lutheran teaching on a couple matters is gently rejected, and that's why the Lord's Day on the Ascension is so long, uh, because it's, it's trying to show what Reformed folks and actually most Protestants believe about the person of Jesus Christ, and how it works that he is fully human and fully divine. Lutherans have a different take on that than most Protestants. But as a whole, the catechism, it's just trying to be a positive summary of our faith. And one person said it's probably the most Catholic expression of the Christian faith to come out of the Reformed churches. And Catholic there is used uh, in the sense of the most broadly evangelical. It's the most broadly biblical catechism. And I, th- I think that's a reason why it's so broadly loved. So Frederick didn't hold on to the Palatinate uh, for too long. Uh, the whole region went Lutheran sometime later, but by that time, the Heidelberg Catechism had started spreading, and it was immediately a big hit in many, many places, especially in the Netherlands, where the roots of the Christian Reformed Church are. A few decades later, at a great synod of the church in the early 1600s, they advised that this is such a great roadmap for the Bible that it should be used every Sunday in the second service, with the afternoon service, as a teaching tool for, for the kids, for the students, for the whole family. And that's one of the reasons it got so solidified in, in our tradition. Um, I want to tick off, there are a number of denominations that have this catechism officially as their catechism in North America. The Presbyterian Church in America officially holds it as a catechism. Our church, of course, the Christian Reformed Church. The United Reformed Churches, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Reformed Church in America, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, the United Church of Christ, which is a successor to German Reformed Churches, uh, the Free Reformed Churches of North America, the Heritage Reformed Congregations, the Canadian and American Reformed Churches, the Protestant Reformed Churches, and 
a number of other Reformed and Presbyterian churches around the world. After the Bible, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism is considered to be the most widely circulated book in the entire world. Its contents, what's in it, is just what is typical of catechisms ever since they've been written. And that's going back to the basics of Christian teaching from the early church on. Nothing mysterious about what's in it. It's just talking about the Apostles' Creed, the sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Just really core stuff about our faith. One of the things that makes it very unique, though, is how it has this three-fold structure. And there are a few different ways you can put it. Uh, One is sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. We don't know exactly how they came up with this very unique approach, an approach that turns out to be very helpful. There don't seem to be other catechisms that do this, and there are dozens and dozens of catechisms. But what we do know is this is the flow of the book of Romans. This is, those three are, simp- are really the outline of the book of Romans. So that is likely where it came from. Again, a very, just a very biblically-based idea and approach. I'm really convinced that um, we should be familiar with this uh, catechism today. It's why we preach from it regularly, and it's why we teach it to our students. For some people who have grown up with it, I found there is sometimes a lack of appreciation. But then I think we're missing something. You know, sometimes when you've always had a good thing, you don't appreciate it as much as you could. My dad um, helped start a a church in Southern California, and he was very involved in that, and so was I. I was um, like college age at that time, and that actually, in that church plant is where I felt called to enter the ordained ministry. And what he did there, um, there were two pastors that were sort of doing this on the side. They had full-time jobs. It was my dad and another guy um, by the name of Tim Spikestra. Uh, one of them preached through a book of the Bible in the mornings, and in the evening, they did the Heidelberg Catechism. My dad called it at that time the Heidelberg Bible Study Series, just because catechism is sort of a, a scary word and, and an older word that a lot of newer Christians wouldn't understand. So this church was, was really filled with a lot of brand new Christians. And I have to say, they were completely amazed by the Heidelberg Catechism. They had, most of them, gone through life without really a knowledge of Jesus and his word or the church. And, and, and as a result, didn't really have good direction and purpose in life. And then they found and saw this this, this structure to the faith, this tool, and, and they had just a tremendous appreciation for it. I remember at least one of them had said, wow, their life, life makes sense, you know? Um, and of course, it does through the Bible, but 
the Bible's kind of big and maybe hard to get into, so the catechism helps as an approach to the Bible. And, and they, they taught the few of us that, that were of Reformed background and knew it, they helped us get even more excited about than ever before. Just to quote someone I, I respect about the catechism, it is through and through trustworthy and beautiful, simple and deep. There's, there's no doubt about it that all of us need to know the Bible much better than the Heidelberg Catechism. It's not on the same level as the Bible. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. But this same person, and his name is Reverend Kevin DeYoung, said this to kind of put it in perspective with the Bible. Have you ever found understanding the Bible a bit like exploring America on foot? Interesting, but overwhelming and slow going. If so, check out the handy roadmap that is the Heidelberg Catechism. Its purpose back then seems to me should be very similar for us today to help us know the Bible better, to help us know our faith better. And what that is is all about knowing Jesus better. We talked about last Sunday morning about building our church on the rock. And I think keeping the Heidelberg Catechism alive like we do is really an important way we can do that. The introduction to the Catechism is Lord's Day 1, and you can go there or not go there. It's up to you. It's on, we're just going to take a peek in the last little part of our message. It's on page 8 in the back of the blue Psalter hymnals. So it's Lord's Day. Lord's Day, that just refers to Sunday, and there are 52 of them. So the idea was one a Sunday. Lord's Day just refers to lesson. So Lord's Day 1 does two things. First of all, in question and answer 2, it gives us the roadmap for the catechism. It outlines the three parts. Second, The first question and answer, the little bit longer one, remember we read it together this morning in worship, and we're going to sing from it after the sermon. It gives an introduction to the whole thing with the theme of comfort. And that continues to be just a little bit of a puzzle. Is that really the best word to summarize the Bible and its teaching. Is that really the best overarching theme for the scriptures? You might think of other words before that, like love or truth or mercy or grace or the word of God, all seem like better options, but they chose comfort. And I think they did this in light of much death that they experienced in daily life in the 1500s compared to what we're used to. At that time, about one-third of all children died by the age of 10. There's no knowledge of bacteria or antibiotics. Bubonic plague, smallpox, measles, and even the flu was deadly. In the same year the Catechism was written, 1563, 
one-fifth of the population of London was killed from the plague. And in the next hundred years, that would happen four more times that one-fifth of the population of London was knocked off from the plague. Can you imagine that? Like, I don't know, 100, 150 of people from our church dead because the plague came through? That's, that's what we're talking about. That's what happened. I couldn't find exact numbers for Europe, but in early New England, they estimate 20% of women died in childbirth. Any woman who was pregnant in those days, 1500s, 1600s, would have known several examples in her own life of women who had died giving birth. Life expectancy in England in the 1600s, just across the water from uh, the Netherlands and Germany, life expectancy was 35. That's especially because so many people died in childhood or at childbirth. So there were plenty of people who lived beyond that if they survived the first 10 years of their life. But the fact remains, 35 was the life expectancy. That's partly how it could be that Ursinus, the author of the catechism, was only about 25 or 26 years old when he wrote it. That was the height of your career in those days. Those were your productive years. By age 12, kids were entering the university already because they didn't have that much long to live. So death was much more a part of everyday life than it is for us. And as a result, the need for comfort was much greater. And the need for water for me. I think, though, that we need the comfort as much today, even if the death rate, by God's grace, is a lot lower Suffering is no less today, even though we tend to gloss it over, even if we make hospitals look like shopping malls and make them comfortable, there is sickness and death. A couple years ago, I was in the new Elmhurst Hospital for two nights, and I was at Central DePage Hospital overnight two nights at two different times. I was grateful those places were so cushy and comfortable and nice. But I still didn't want to be there. It's still a hospital. You're there still because you're ill and struggling. Nothing can hide that. Even with modern convenience and technology, suffering and sickness is real. And even though we've made progress, wonderful progress in terms of infant mortality and mothers dying in childbirth, death happens unexpectedly, suddenly. And we got to come to terms with that. There's a lot of suffering. There are a lot of challenges, even apart from that ultimate challenge of death. And, and I'm just more convinced each day and every year that every single person, I think sometimes people that, that go through hard times and suffering, it's such a big deal when it hits you that you feel like I'm the only one who's suffering. And I think that's a natural thing to feel, and I don't think that's wrong to feel. But I really think that every person experiences significant suffering in their life. Some of the suffering, you know, we, we read in the bulletin and we're very aware of. Some of it, 
a lot of it, I don't think, is known. There, there's an old saying, and I've shared it with you before, and this is an English translation of it, but every home has its cross is the saying. Every home has its cross. I really think that's true, and I think that's something for us to, uh, to recognize when, when, when we meet one another in the church and outside the church. There's, there's something be, behind everyone's life. In light of all of that, the heart of our faith, the heart of the Bible's message is that there is good news. There is comfort available. And the focus of that comfort is offered to us here and it's given to us here. And it's very simple. It's very evangelical. The focus of the comfort is Jesus. And how Jesus is presented in this very first question and answer is very reformed. It's not talking a lot about my choosing Jesus, my decision, though there's an important aspect of our lives where we respond to Jesus, of course. But the focus here is my belonging to him. And that implies a prior action of God before ours. And the reason for that is because there is, frankly, very little comfort to be found in our decisions. Our decisions, as we'll see in the first section of this catechism, show that we consistently choose for sin. We consistently choose against God. We consistently choose our own way. But all of that can change when God steps in and changes our hearts. That good news, that comfort of belonging to Jesus, that is the focus in this roadmap of the catechism. It keeps coming through all throughout the different topics. And that's something great we have to share with the world. As much as we can try to hide it in our day and age and minimize it, we and everyone, we're a people in need. Whether the need is physical with an illness, whether it's emotional need, anxiety or depression or loneliness, or mentally with the weight of our responsibilities on our shoulders. The Bible tells us that there is a solution to all of that. There is a comfort. There's a place to find rest for your weary souls. And it's in Jesus and his finished work, in the great love and mercy of our God, who planned our salvation and security through the sending of his Son, and through the sending of his spirit. Praise God. And praise God for this teaching tool that helps us in the Great Commission, that brings our focus to Jesus and our need for him, that shows us the way of salvation and shows us the way we can thank him and live for him and serve him.